Hi everyone and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. Today, I'm telling you the second half of the story surrounding the murder of JonBenet Ramsey. And let me just say, buckle the hell up. We've got a lot to discuss. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. to the scene at 755 15th Street on December 26, 1996, with the Boulder police now having been granted search warrants after the Ramseys decamped to their friends, the Fernies house. There, Patsy spent the day alternatively crying, pacing, praying with their reverend, and sleeping with the help of some Valium. John is said to have gone on a few walks during the day with John Fernie, as well as one with his lawyer who he had hired, Michael Bynum. Me, myself, would love to know what was discussed on that particular stroll. And as for the BPD, well, they spent the rest of the afternoon executing the warrant, collecting various items for examination, and they also had the Ramsey's cars searched as well. At 8 p.m. that night, again, December 26th, Dr. John Meyer, the pathologist for the BPD, arrived on the scene to examine Jean Benet's lifeless body. She had remained under the Christmas tree this whole time, which is equal parts eerie and relieving because, thank God, everyone had finally stopped touching her. According to his autopsy report, this is what Meyer observed when he first arrived at the Ramseys. Quote, I initially viewed the body in the living room of the house. The decedent was laying on her back on the floor, covered by a blanket and a Colorado avalanche sweatshirt. On removing these two items from the top of the body, the decedent was found to be lying on her back with her arms extended up over her head. The head was turned to the right. A brief examination of the body disclosed a ligature around the neck and a ligature around the right wrist. Also noted was a small area of abrasion or contusion below the right ear on the lateral aspect of the right cheek. A prominent dried abrasion was present on the lower left neck. By 8.30, Meyer had left the scene and he would perform Jean Benet's full autopsy the next morning. At 10.45 p.m., Jean Benet's body was finally removed from the house. Shortly after, Detective Linda Arndt left the scene. Just before midnight, after a day of events none of its occupants could ever have expected, the Ramsey house was finally dark, quiet, and empty. Bright and early the next morning, December 27, 1996, Dr. Meyer performed the full autopsy of Jean Benet's body with Detective Arndt and Detective Tom Trujillo also in attendance. Now, the autopsy report is full of Gray's anatomy lingo and highbrow medical jargon, and as someone who got their lab credits in college through a gardening class, I'm going to break down Meyer's report as best as little old layman me can. Also, obviously, for those of the squeamish variety, consider this your trigger warning since we're about to get quite into the autopsy findings. Initially, investigators assumed that JonBenet had died by ligature strangulation because of the garrote around her neck. But that initial thought process changed course once JonBenet arrived on Meyer's table. When Meyer conducted the autopsy, he discovered that despite there being no external damage to her scalp, Jean Benet's skull had been fractured. 
She had received what appeared to be a blow to the right side of her head, which caused a significant brain bleed on almost the entire right side of her brain. This bleed measured actually to be about seven by four inches. The fracture itself measured about eight and a half inches long and underneath the skull fracture, the contusion sustained on her brain was about eight inches long and 1.7 inches wide. And think about it contextually. This is a massive injury sustained by a little girl who was only 45 pounds at the time of her death. She had a skull fracture, hemorrhaging and bruises on her brain. The fracture itself, quote, crossed multiple suture lines and was a half inch wide in the portion of the skull that was, quote, punched out by the force of the blow she sustained. I feel like we in the true crime realm very often hear the phrases hemorrhage and hematoma, and it's something I want to clarify. A hemorrhage is an active bleed, while a hematoma is a bleed that has since clotted. Because Jean Benet had extensive hemorrhaging present in her brain, the pres presence of this indicates, quote, she was alive when she sustained the head injury. She did have a small presence of subdural hematoma from the hemorrhage, which then suggests that, quote, the injury occurred in the perimortem period, which is the period close to death. Considering how extensive her head injuries were, it might come across as surprising that nobody at the scene apparently was aware of them. The skin hadn't broken where Jean Benet was struck, so there wasn't a huge wound or even any blood. However, that said, it's actually not too unusual a circumstance. Consider, for example, concussions. The skull and thus the brain can absorb a lot of trauma and force without the skin breaking, though that doesn't always mean that one can survive it. The most obvious injuries on Jean Benet's body were the ligature marks embedded into her neck. One mark in particular was very deep and it encircled her entire neck. According to Meyer's external examination, quote, it is almost completely horizontal with slight upward deviation from the horizontal towards the back of the neck. Above and below what I suppose we can call the main ligature mark were other less prominent ligature marks, abrasions, and other instances of petechial hemorrhaging. The presence of petechial hemorrhaging shows that there was bleeding under the skin, probably due to the pressure and application of the garrot. From the autopsy report, Meyer noted, quote, the abrasions and petechial hemorrhages of the skin above and below the anterior projection of the ligature furrow are non-patterned, purple to rust colored, and present in the midline, right, and left areas of the anterior neck. Internally, Meyer noted that there was no evidence of trauma to any part of the internal neck musculature, though. The hyoid bone remained intact, as did the tracheus cartilage. The discovery of the skull fracture and the intense damage absorbed by the brain from whatever trauma caused the fracture, coupled with the extensive ligature markings on Jean Benet's neck, led Meyer to his official finding. Meyer's official ruling for the cause of death was, quote, asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma. Not only are we learning medical ease today, but we are also learning French, folks, because the asphyxia is theorized to have come from the crudely fashioned garrote found around Jean Benet's neck. There have been a number of conversations between many minds over the years since 1996 about what came first, the blow to the head or the strangulation. Meyer himself claimed he couldn't determine which event happened first. However, since we've had 24 years to puzzle this over, those same minds, many of them medical professionals and pathologists who have also worked the case, 
come to a generally accepted timeline that the blow happened first and the strangulation followed. Former Boulder Police Chief Mike Beckner in a now infamous Reddit AMA confirmed this as well, saying, quote, we know from the evidence she was hit in the head very hard with an unknown object, possibly a flashlight or similar type item. The blow knocked her into deep unconsciousness, which would have led someone to believe she was dead. The strangulation came 45 minutes to two hours after the head strike, based on the swelling on the brain. I'm inclined to believe this is a series of events that took place myself, based both on the physical evidence and situational logic, which we'll get to. Beyond the devastating head trauma and the garrote twisted around her throat, there were other odd injuries and abnormalities that were noticed during the rest of her autopsy. Petechial hemorrhaging was noticed in her eyes. There was a mark just under her right ear said to be about a fourth inch area of rust colored abrasion and a superficial abrasion on her chin. There was more petechial hemorrhaging noticed on her right shoulder as well as a quote, pale purple contusion. There was what appeared to be a drawing of a heart drawn in red ink on her left palm. Meyer noted that an examination of Jaminet's extremities beyond this doodle yielded nothing out of the ordinary. On the lower left side of her back were two dried rust colored to slightly purple abrasions with no visible contusions surrounding them. The larger of the two measured about an eighth by one sixteenth of an inch and the other was three sixteenths of an inch by one eighth of an inch. Internally, there wasn't anything of extraordinary note except this, quote, the proximal portion of the small intestine contains fragmented pieces of yellow to light green tan apparent vegetable or fruit material, which may represent fragments of pineapple. In English, just prior to her death, Jean Bonnet had eaten pineapple. And trust me when I say, we will get to it. Again here, I'd like to offer a trigger warning because it's at this juncture I need to discuss what Meyer noted during an examination of Jean Bonnet's external and internal genitalia, as well as a brief discussion about sexual assault. The is there or isn't there debate about whether or not the autopsy findings show that Jean Bonnet suffered sexual abuse is much like the chicken or the egg dilemma of the head trauma and strangulation. I'm going to get more in depth about this particular aspect of the case later, but for now, let me just share Meyer's findings. According to the autopsy report, there was a small amount of, quote, dried and semi-fluid blood located along the labia majora, labia minora, and there was blood in her underwear. Meyer noted that the labia majora also had a, quote, violet discoloration measuring approximately one inch by three-eighths of an inch. Inside the vagina, quote, a minimal amount of semi-liquid thin watery red fluid was also found. Also inside the vagina along the vaginal wall, Meyer noticed, quote, reddish hyperemia, which suggests the presence of inflammation and was further backed up by Meyer discovering chronic inflammation along the vaginal mucosa, which is the front third of the vaginal opening. And this is really bringing me back to middle school sex ed. I've got to be honest with all this lingo. Most alarmingly, there was a one centimeter red purple abrasion that involved the hymen and Jean Bonnet's right vaginal wall. That is to say, Jean Bonnet's hymen had been broken, at least somewhat recently. There were microscopic shards of wood found in her vaginal wall, which later were determined to have come from the broken paintbrush that was used to make the roughly thrown together garrote. When vaginal, anal, and oral swabs came back, no semen or seminal fluid was found on Jean Bonnet's body, 
her clothes, or specifically in her underwear. However, one of the strangest things of note Meyer made mention of, he wouldn't have been able to find anything to report from the swabs because, according to him, it appeared Jean Benet's entire genital area had been inexplicably wiped down, erasing any evidence that might have remained on her body. Also consider this from Boulder Chief Police Mark Beckner. Quote, while the head wound would have eventually killed her, the strangulation actually did kill her. The rest of the scene, we believe, was staged, including the vaginal trauma, to make it look like a kidnapping or assault gone bad. Though Meyer officially reported JonBenet's cause of death as asphyxia by strangulation associated with cranial cerebral trauma, it was becoming clear that these autopsy findings weren't providing so many answers as they were producing even more questions. And question number one, what the hell really happened to Jean Benet on the night of December 25th leading into December 26th? In the days after Jean Benet's body was discovered, pictures of her glammed out to the max and videos of her slowly parading around a stage were part and parcel for almost every news story that came out about her murder. In terms of media coverage, it was a perfect storm that transformed into a circus of its own. The week after Christmas is typically pretty empty of attention-grabbing stories. The idea of a beautiful little pageant girl slain created a darkly macabre sort of glitz that journalists gorged themselves on. And in a post-OJ world, this was the type of news story that once again captured a nation all too eager to follow along with every detail that made its way onto their television screens or printed in their local paper. As the police began scouring the crime scene, they finally realized the Ramsey house was, John and Patsy were making their own arrangements from the safety of their neighbor's home. By the night of December 27th, John had already finalized the plans for Jean Benet's funeral, and he shared them during a brief meeting with Detective Arndt and Sergeant Larry Mason. The Ramseys planned to hold a memorial for their daughter in two days' time on that Sunday, December 29th, in Boulder. And immediately after, they planned to fly to Atlanta, where the funeral and burial would take place on that Tuesday. At that same meeting, Detective Arndt told the Ramseys that she would arrange to schedule interviews for John and Patsy on Saturday, the 28th, before they left town. But that wouldn't happen. In fact, the Ramseys wouldn't be formally interviewed by police until April 30th, 1997, just over four months after Jean Benet was found dead, as opposed to the traditional 24 to 48 hour time span interviews should happen in. Obviously, this begs the question, what the fuck? Again, like I said in part one of our Jean Benet series, when it came to this case back in 96 and in early 97, police protocol seemed effectively null and void as far as the Ramseys were concerned. On the morning of December 28th, Patsy claimed she was too distraught to submit to the evidence collection authorities tried to gather, and BPD just like, let that happen. In fact, that might be the last time the Ramseys were in the presence of Boulder police without criminal representation. After the forensic collection that John, John Andrew, and Burke had undergone, Michael Bynum, the legal representative friend John had hired the day the afternoon of John Benet's body was found, he approached Detective Arndt with a message. 
He claimed that, quote, the Ramseys would not give any more testimonial evidence without a criminal attorney present, and they would no longer share privileged information with the police. Later that afternoon, Bynum called Brian Morgan of Haddon, Morgan and Foreman in Denver, which was one of Colorado's top firms. By that evening, the Ramseys had retained Morgan as well as Patrick Burke. Now, I'm a proponent of the idea that if you're ever in a legally dicey situation, by all means, get yourself a lawyer. It's not incriminating. It's instinctively protective. What I do find question about all of this is that charming message Bynum related to the BPD that just two days after their daughter's brutalized body had been found in their basement, these parents were refusing to share privileged information with the police and forget any chance of meeting with them without a lawyer because that simply wasn't going to happen. It gets even more interesting when you consider the press release made the next day. On December 29th, the day of the Boulder Memorial Service, the city of Boulder released their fourth iteration of updates for the public about the Ramsey case. In part, it read, quote, the family continues to cooperate with the police investigation, although police have not yet conducted interviews with the father and mother. They have been in no condition to be interviewed up to this point. Yes, it is just 72 hours after you found your daughter's lifeless body in your house. And yes, your world has been turned upside down, but what is this absurd kid glove treatment the Ramseys are getting? It needs to be asked. Did the Ramseys receive some sort of special treatment because they were affluent, white, well-liked members of the Boulder community? How else would the BPD rationalize giving this family so many passes in the crucial first few days after the murder that honestly most likely jeopardized the integrity of the investigation from the start? It's one of the most maddening things about this case, recounting and recognizing all the different ways the BPD so royally fucked this investigation up from the start. And it's really, really difficult to give the investigating officers the benefit of the doubt because of how wildly they strayed from proper protocols. This concept of what a circus the case became became even more evident the day after Jean Benet, dressed in one of her most spectacular pageant gowns and with a winning crown nestled into her hair, was laid to rest next to her half-sister Elizabeth in Georgia on December 31st, 1996. Because the very next day, on January 1st, 1997, before even meeting with police, the Ramseys appeared on CNN to give their first interview about what had happened to their daughter. Let that sink in. Before they ever gave any sort of statement to the police in an interview capacity, these two rocked up to CNN and gave the nation an interview before they sat down with police. And a hell of an interview it was. There are portions and snippets of the interview available throughout the internet, so I definitely invite anyone who hasn't ever seen them to check them out. I'll link as many cohesive ones as I can find on the DAW Patreon page. I do want to make the clarifying point that before we get into this, and while we're about to jump into some discussion about the things that were said and behavior that was displayed during this interview and other subsequent interviews, all of this comes from a place of, shall we say, speculative analysis. Interpreting body language and emotional behavior, especially during a time of upheaval and grief, 
is a fool's errand because it's so subjective and can't truly be based in hard and fact fact. Even though we've had 20 plus years to carefully critique and analyze the behavior the Ramses displayed on this New Year's Day interview is still subjective to the viewer and subjective to our interpretation. All that said, this is speculative analysis. Nobody sue me. There is nothing to see here, Burke. There are a few key instances in this CNN interview that have stuck out to me, even just reading them from a black and white transcript as opposed to watching the Ramseys deliver their statements. While being questioned by Brian Cabal of CNN about why they had hired an attorney so quickly, John started to answer, but Patsy, she jumped into his explanation with this, quote, and if anyone knows anything, please, please help us. For the safety of all the children, we have to find out who did this. Immediately after, John responds like this, quote, not because we're angry, but because we have got to go on. So let's just examine this exchange right here. Quote, not because we're angry, but because we have got to go on. Sir, your daughter was found dead in your basement five days ago. As always, it's damn near impossible to judge the behaviors of those in grief or shock, but still saying we have got to go on less than a week after your daughter was murdered. Why are they so determined to move on, to go on, as John puts it? It sounds tone deaf at best and as if they're trying to distance themselves from all of this at worst. I also find the phrasing, quote, not because we're angry, odd in and of itself. Anger is, of course, part of the grieving process, but why are they so quick to claim that they aren't angry? And why does John phrase it in such a way that it sounds patronizing? It's like the lead up to that famous phrase of, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. It's as if they're trying to convince the killer that, no, 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 they are only disappointed that you killed their daughter. Diminishing anger in a way that seems like they're trying to comfort the killer or that they're sympathetic to whoever killed Jean Benet. It's odd phrasing. There's simply no other way to put it. Here's another instance immediately following this exchange that caught both my eye and ear. From Patsy, we can't, we can't, and from John, this quote, we cannot go on until we know why. There's no answer as to why our daughter died. Why our daughter died? Why are they asking why? The question should be who or how. How did their daughter die? Who killed their daughter? Instead, they're asking the more existential question of why their daughter died. And that itself begs the question of why is that their focus? Shouldn't they be asking who? Unless that's a question that they already have the answer to. Because instead of asking who, maybe the Ramses already know who killed their daughter. And finally, let's take a look at the infamous keep your babies close soliloquy Patsy delivered while metaphorically flipping the finger to the Boulder mayor. From Brian Cabal, quote, the police said a couple days ago to assure other residents of Boulder, there is no killer on the loose here. You can be assured everything is under control. However, you believe it's someone outside your home. Quoting Patsy, there is a killer on the loose. I don't know who it is. I don't know if it's a he or a she, but if I were a resident of Boulder, I would tell my friends to keep, keep your babies close to you. There's someone out there. Now, it should be noted, during the CNN interview, Patsy was almost guaranteed high as a fucking kite. 
We know from reports that she'd been taking Valium in the immediate aftermath of the 26th. And Paula Woodward's book, she wrote that, quote, Patsy, who was on heavy anti-anxiety medication and tranquilizers at the time of the CNN interview, did not come off well on camera with her halting and disorganized speech. John later said that he came to regret doing the CNN interview and that it was a, quote, spur of the moment kind of thing, which to that I call bullshit. You don't just rock up to CNN and get to have a sit-down interview without so much as a buy your leave. And given the tribe of lawyers they already had on hand, what lawyer is going to allow their client to go on national television in the midst of a murder investigation, quote, spur of the moment? The Ramseys, it has been said over the years, they come off coached in interviews, and I would be hard-pressed to believe that their lawyers didn't prep them at least for this interview, given the scrutiny it would inevitably come under and the rabid attention it would no doubt draw from across the country. I think the Ramseys chose to go on CNN so quickly after the murder because they knew the value of getting to the media first. The benefit of telling the media your story is that you control the narrative that you tell them. They wanted to get ahead of the speculation and suspicion that was already swirling. And Patsy, with her degree in advertising and marketing, and as an image-conscious pageant queen, would absolutely see the benefit of sitting down with CNN to get their story out first. But it's here for me that it's clear the CNN interview did derail a little bit for Patsy and John. Because, as it was their first interview, the Ramseys weren't well-practiced yet. Though they had had five days to confer and collaborate whatever they needed to. Patsy herself waffled between sounding, quote, calm to almost hysterical. They were disorganized. They spoke over each other. They weren't focused. Hell, John barely took his eyes off the floor the entire interview. They hadn't yet perfected the story they needed to tell. They just knew that they needed to get one out there. Though the Ramseys sat with CNN on January 1st, just five days after Jean Monnet's body was found, it would be four months until they had their formal interviews with Boulder police. Again, it seems absurd that this type of deflection and refusal to meet was allowed to go on for so long. There was a long road leading to the Ramsey's April 30th interviews, and I'd like to share some of the things that took place during those four months here. One thing that's always struck me as odd is that a week after the CNN interview, Burke was interviewed by a child psychologist from the Department of Social Services, Dr. Suzanne Bernhardt. Let me stress this. Their own son was interviewed before they were. This would actually be Burke's second interview since he did sit down with a police officer on the 26th, which again, their son was interviewed more than they were in the months leading up to their formal interview. Again, I'll post links to some of Burke's interviews as I can find them on the DAW Patreon page but let me just say from the jump, Burke's behavior and statements during this interview were grade A fucking weird. His behavior was so rambunctious and dare I say playful that you'd never know his sister had been killed two weeks prior. There was no childlike fear of being kidnapped himself and he even told the psychologist that he felt safe. There is no wondering if he would be next as one might expect a child to think. In fact, when Bernhardt asked him directly how he was dealing with Jean Monnet's death, he said, quote, I kind of just forget about it because I'm just, and then he mimed playing with a video game. 
He would later double down on the sentiment and said, quote, I'm basically just going on with my life. To this, I have to say two things. One, what the fuck kind of dissociation is this? And two, what an eerily similar comment to make. One that mirrors John's comment during the CNN interview that, quote, we've got to go on. Throughout the course of the interview with Dr. Bernhardt, Bert makes a variety of other odd and borderline inappropriate comments to the questions that she asks. When asked at the beginning of their time together if he has any secrets, Burke replies, quote, probably, but I don't think I'd tell you because then it wouldn't be a secret. Which, what, what nearly 10-year-old says something like that to an adult? And it gets stranger still, though, when Bernhardt asks Burke what he thinks happened to Jean Benet. To that, he says, quote, well, I know what happened. She was killed. He goes on to say that, quote, someone, I think, maybe someone took a knife out and stabbed her. He pauses and then adds, quote, or maybe a hammer. Someone hit her over the head. And then, unprompted as he's speaking, physically demonstrates the act of hitting someone over the head. There's something from Burke's past that I need to bring up here. About a year and a half before Jean Benet died, Burke had actually hit Jean Benet in the head with a golf club. He hit her hard enough that he left a scar, a scar that worried Patsy enough that she consulted with a plastic surgeon to see if they should have it removed. There have been various reports from family insiders and once friends like Judith Phillips, the family's photographer, who shared that Burke did have a bit of a temper and he was known to lose it on occasion when it came to Jean Benet. It's been theorized over the years that these bouts of anger stemmed from the possibility Burke may have been dealing poorly with feelings of jealousy or resentment towards Jean Benet and all of the attention that Patsy lavished on her. Hell, maybe it even stemmed from unresolved emotions about Patsy's cancer treatments and how stressful that had been for the family. It's not only the anger issues Burke seemed to have that I want to discuss. We're just going to dive right into the elephant in the room the matter of the feces, and the possible connection to Burke. Similarly to the claims that Burke may have been suffering from jealousy issues that he dealt with through angry outbursts, there have been claims that there was what's referred to as, quote, scatological misconduct going on in the Ramsey household. It's an issue that surrounds this case that is often overlooked or ignored, I think because it makes so many people uncomfortable. The Ramsey's housekeepers, Linda Hoffman-Pug and Geraldine Vadika, both reported that they had found feces in the house before. Geraldine had found that Burke had, quote, smeared feces on walls a few years before during Patsy's cancer treatments when Patsy's mother asked her to clean it up. And similarly, Linda reported that she'd once found, quote, fecal matter the size of a grapefruit in Jean Benet's bed. The housekeepers weren't the only ones to find evidence of feces in Jean Benet's room. The crime scene investigators did too on the day of Jean Benet's murder. Now, Patsy had a tendency to keep things a bit cluttered in the family's private rooms, but I find it hard to believe that she would just let that kind of thing slide and go unattended if she knew it was there, and especially if she knew CSI teams would soon be traipsing through Jean Benet's room. It's well known by now that Jean Benet had problems with bedwetting, and Patsy was diligent about staying on top of that. So I have to imagine that she had cleaned anything of a fecal matter if she knew about it being there which leads me to believe that she didn't know there were feces smeared across various things in Jean Benet's room, either the night of December 25th or leading into December 26th. In his book, Foreign Faction, James Kohler tells us that CSI teams, quote, 
observed what appeared to be fecal matter smeared across a box of candy that Jaminet had just received that day. There was also a pair of pajama pants deemed to be too large to have fit Jaminet on the floor of her room, also showing fecal matter staining them. The only person in the household known to have smeared feces on items prior to Jaminet's death is Bark. And now, the very day that she's found dead, there is fecal matter observed on one of the Christmas presents she received in the hours before her death. It's a really, really difficult connection to ignore, as uncomfortable as it is to consider. But it is something that we need to consider as a possibility as we move forward. I'm jumping ahead of our April 30th interview for a second because before we go back to everything that unfolded before John and Patsy's interviews, I want to share one more thing about Burke. And that's his June 10th, 1998 interview with Detective Schuler in Atlanta, who was representing the Boulder DA's office. Burke was interviewed for a total of six hours, broken up into two-hour spans over three days. John and Patsy only agreed to this because they, quote, hoped it would forestall a grand jury subpoena for their son. And that wouldn't happen. During the summer of 1998, Burke was about 11 and a half at the time, and during the interview, he shows that typical smart-ass, too-cool-for-you attitude preteens on the cusp so regularly show. Throughout the interview, he rolls his eyes, crosses his arms, sits casually in the armchair he's seated in with his legs thrown over the arm. He seemingly has an answer for everything, like this exchange when he tells the detective about the morning of the 26th. From the detective, quote, do you remember hearing your mom on the phone? Burke, quote, no, I don't think I could hear because I could just barely hear my parents downstairs from my room. Also, I just want to note, Burke is telling us how he was awake during the time that John and Patsy realized JonBenet was missing, which coincidentally, you know, directly contradicts the storyline John and Patsy have said over the years that Burke was asleep the entire time until John woke him up a little after 7 a.m. to take him to the neighbor's house. Just, you know, something to consider. A few questions later, though, Burke has this to say again about hearing his parents at morning. From the detective, quote, Okay, I interrupted you when you were saying what you heard, and you were talking about your dad telling your mom to call the police or something? From Burke, quote, He was like, okay, calm down, like, we can call the police, let's call the police. From the detective, You could hear that quite clearly from your room? From Burke, quote, Pretty clearly in the distance, quote, pretty clearly. Ruminate on that contradiction a little bit. All of this posturing changed, however, when Schuler asked Burke one question. Schuler slid over a CSI photo that was taken on the 26th and asked Burke to describe the picture of the dining room table and specifically what he saw in a bowl on the table. At this, Burke noticeably and visibly got nervous. He squirmed. He began sitting on his hands. For several minutes, he hemmed and hawed, refusing to directly answer Schuler. For example, quote Burke, it's a bowl of, oh, <laughs> something. Detective Schuler, okay. Burke, quote, looks like glass with a tea bag in it. From Detective Schuler, okay, does that look like cereal inside there? Burke, no, it looks like, it looks a little big, one piece right there for cereal. Maybe like fruit, but there wouldn't be a spoon in it, so I don't know. 
What's interesting to note in this exchange is that Burke's attitude abruptly changes when he sees the bowl of what we know is pineapple. His physical reactions change as well, which you can see for yourself in videos of the interview. He truly dances around the subject of what's in the bowl and seems incredibly uncomfortable about answering the question directly. So I have to ask, why? Like I said, Burke was interviewed for a few hours over a span of a few days. According to Steve Thomas's book, Jean Benet Inside the Ramsey Murder Investigation, quote, when the three days of interviews about his sister's murder were over, Detective Schuler asked the boy if there was anything else he wanted to ask. Burke said yes, and pointed to the detective's wristwatch. Quote, is that a Rolex? Three days of recounting your memories of your sister's murder, all boiling down to asking what kind of watch your interviewer is wearing, is interesting. Anyway, enough of Burke's weirdness. Let's get back to the months leading up to the Ramsey Zone interview and the varying degrees of a shit show that those months were. In January of 97 alone, 14 press releases from the Boulder police would be released. They also included the January 7th presser that the mayor, Leslie Durgin, held to emphatically state that Boulder residents had nothing to fear and that they shouldn't be worrying that, quote, some killer is wandering the streets looking for somebody to attack. This tied into the police's December 30th message relayed to the public and especially the Ramsey's neighbors that there was, quote, no cause for concern for their own safety. Meanwhile, larger media than Boulder's own PR department were coming to call especially thanks to the various leaks that were cropping up. Details about the cords tied around Jamini's wrists, the duct tape found on her mouth, that the ransom note was written on Patsy's notepad, and how much the ransom had been were all leaked throughout the course of the month. Most troubling of all, the Globe somehow got their hands on the photos of Jamini's autopsy and published them on January 13th, which, talk about absolutely fucking heartless and disgustingly voyeuristic, one week later, People published a massive article about the case, truly bringing it into the fodder tabloids love to prey upon. Despite all of this, the Ramseys were staying busy as they hired even more experts to join their legal coterie. Within a day of returning to Boulder after Jean Benet's funeral, they hired their own private investigator. They had a website created about their case, and they hired not just a former FBI criminal profiler, but also their own handwriting analysis experts independent, of course, from the ones the BPD were using to study the ransom note. On January 22nd, the Denver Post reported that the Ramseys had refused to take a lie detector test, furthering the public perception that, almost at every turn, it seemed like the Ramseys were hell-bent on simply doing things by their own rules, even if it was directly contradictory towards helping the BPD. Or maybe it was especially meant to be contradictory. As the late winter months turned into the first few months of spring, whispers began to weave their way through town in the national news that the Ramseys were thinking about abandoning Boulder altogether. Not that anyone would blame them, per se. More lawyers were hired to join the family's team, even as their first spokesman was fired. Meanwhile, Patsy was submitting her third handwriting sample, the Charlevoix home was searched for a second time, and her stepchildren, John, Andrew, and Melinda, were officially cleared as suspects. John was busy creating the JonBenet Ramsey Foundation, and the DNA evidence underwent its second round of testing. On April 15th, in what was becoming something of a regular occurrence, Patsy handed in her fifth handwriting sample to BPD. Three days later, on April 18th, the Boulder District Attorney, Alex Hunter, came out 
and named the Ramses as official suspects. To the Associated Press, he said, quote, obviously we are looking at these people, which what a way to let the world know how absolutely strained the working relationship between the BPD and the Ramses was. It became even more obvious, this contention between the family and the police, when the Ramses published an absolutely scathing letter on April 23rd, claiming the police were, quote, lacking objectivity, which, what? This is a murder investigation for your daughter. The statistics say that whenever a child is killed in the home, they are most likely killed by a family member. This is not some personal vendetta against yourselves, J and P. It's damn near laughable that the Ramseys believe that they should be above police suspicion for the simple fact of who they were and what their affluence afforded them. And at their mind, it was supposed to afford them protection from any suspicion in their daughter's murder. A quick insight into what the Ramseys considered, quote, corroboration. In this letter, their lawyers, quote, noted that police rejected the parents' offer to consent to an interview on January 8th. I'm going to assume this was because John and Patsy, and I am not kidding here, quote, insisted investigators interrogate the couple together for no more than one hour in a doctor's presence at the family attorney's office. Again, with wanting the kid glove treatment that they had, unfortunately, seemingly come to expect from the Boulder BPD, as it was how they were treated when kidnapping was on the forefront of everyone's minds back in December. These allowances the Ramseys were given on the morning of the 26th, combined with the social power and sheer money that they had available to them, really highlight how not only did the Boulder PD misstep in their handling of the initial scene, it shows how the Ramseys came to believe that they deserve a certain kind of treatment that was not theirs to claim when what originated as a kidnapping became an obvious homicide. Being viewed and named as suspects offended the Ramseys, despite the fact that they were not the first parents viewed with suspicion in relation to a crime against a child, and they certainly, unfortunately, won't be the last. With this offense, the Ramseys utilized their legal team to ensure their story was still being projected and protected, even if, and as it has to be said, their attempts to create more hindrances and obstacles to the very people trying to provide answers about their daughter's murder, and that they claim they wanted. So, even though it will, it shouldn't shock anyone that when it came to agreeing to the long-awaited April 30th, 1997 interview, the Ramseys essentially presented the police with a series of demands they wanted met before they would agree to sit down with them. First, according to the Denver Post, the Ramseys had insisted the interviews be conducted away from police headquarters and with a prosecutor present. BPD countered with saying they wanted the interviews conducted separately with Patsy Ramsey going first and that there be no time limit. Agreements were made, but before they sat down, the Ramseys listed one other demand. Through their attorneys, they, quote, requested that they be given the police reports made the day Jean Benet was found murdered. DA Alex Hunter told the Denver Post that this stipulation of allowing the Ramseys to glean what information the police had before the interviews even happened was, quote, an absolute condition by the Ramsey's attorneys before they would allow their clients to give interviews. I'm just going to say it. Are you fucking kidding me? Before anyone jumps down my throat, let me say, here in the United States, we have our Miranda rights. We don't have to talk to the police if we don't want to, particularly if speaking to them might possibly, hypothetically, 
incriminate ourselves. The Ramses had, by all means, the right to remain silent, and they remained silent for four months. Why they refused to be interviewed formally for this length of time, well, their motives and reasons are anyone's guess. Not only had the Ramses had four months before their formal interrogation, but they forced the police to essentially trade off their reports just to get the Ramses to sit down with them. And the police handed the reports over on April 21st, nine whole days before the interviews happened on the 30th. That's nine days to pour over what they had said months ago, review what information the police had, confer with each other, hell, confer with their lawyers, and essentially prepare themselves for this interview. This isn't just kid glove treatment. This is simply straight up unparalleled, entitled ass behavior. On April 30th, 1997 though, the Ramseys finally sat down with police. Patsy was interviewed for six and a half hours, John only for two. After April 30th, they would refuse to meet with police in this same capacity for over a year. Now I've seen and read the transcripts of the interviews from this day. And let me be the first to say, they are a doozy, mainly because so many instances of what was said in 97 contradict what was said and reported by police on December 26th, 1996. Let me just lay out a few gems highlighting these inconsistencies. And I invite anyone who wants to read, compare, and cross-reference the statements themselves because Lord knows I have. From Detective Arndt's statement, quote, John, Patsy Burke, and Jean Benet had returned home at approximately 2200 hours, aka 10 p.m. John told me that Patsy and Burke immediately went to bed. John read a book to Jean Benet, tucked her into bed, then John went to bed. However, this is what John says happened four months later. Quote, we probably got home around 9-ish, 9.15, I think, drove in the back through the alley into the garage. Uh, John Benet had fallen fast asleep. I carried her inside and took her upstairs and put her in bed, put her on her bed. Uh, Patsy came up behind me and then I went down to get Burke ready for his bed. He was down in the living room. Then I took him up to bed and got his pajamas on, probably brushed his teeth. And then I went upstairs from there and got ready for bed. This is straight up an entirely different story. And this isn't the only instance of inconsistencies. On April 30th, very different stories about the timing on the night of December 25th, how bedtime played out that night, who did what with the children, even what JonBenet was wearing that night suddenly was suggested to be a different outfit. These are only a few examples that put into flux the timeline of events on Christmas Day night, and subsequently also raises questions about the timeline of events and even the events themselves that took place on December 26th. Which, as always, begs the question, why? The Ramses had their original statements in front of them for days before they sat down with police. They knew what had been recorded originally. So why are they recounting events differently than what they had originally been reported as? Why have the stories changed? And what does it suggest since they have changed? If this next piece of information shocks you, then you haven't been paying attention to what all we're discussing today. The day after the Ramses submitted to their formal police interview, they, drumroll please, held a televised interview for the local news media. Just makes you want to scream, doesn't it? 
once again, the whole thing seems like an exercise in making sure that their story, their version of events is the one that becomes a publicly accepted one. Cooperation with police and respecting the integrity of the investigation be damned. It especially reads like a PR spin when you learn about the intense stipulations the Ramseys had their lawyers distribute to the seven local media representatives that they had chosen themselves. The process for setting up the interview, according to the Daily Camera, went like this. Quote, the news conference was held under highly secretive conditions at a location in East Boulder. Reporters were notified Wednesday night that they would be invited, and they were instructed to wait by their telephones Thursday morning. When reporters received the call, they were told the location, given ground rules for the interview, and issued a password. What kind of skullduggery is this? I understand the need for privacy and even secrecy, given the absolute circus that this could have become. But a password? Like, come on, a spy novel this is not. Quote, reporters were required to report to a specific door at the location and provide a guard with a password. They were notified of the location about 40 minutes before they were supposed to be there, and they were told that any disclosure of the location to others could result in cancellation. The Ramseys agreed to speak for only 30 minutes, which was allowed to be captured either by print or by audio video, not both. Again, the Daily Camera shares that only invited reporters, three from newspapers, three from television stations, and one from a radio station were allowed to attend. Each reporter was allowed to have a photographer or a camera operator present. Other curious rules included, quote, during the interview, reporters were barred from asking any questions of the Ramseys regarding, quote, the facts of the case, or their Wednesday interview with law enforcement investigators. Reporters were also barred from mentioning the location of the interview by name and speaking to the attorneys or any person on the premises other than the Ramseys. And finally, Photographers were barred from taking any shots of the exterior or signs at the East Boulder location. Any person on the premises is except the Ramseys, including attorneys, the Ramseys at any time, except when they were seated on a couch for the interview. Again, I want to stress that it's almost impossible to judge with accuracy if someone's behavior is, quote, normal during utterly abnormal circumstances. But that said, there were still things said during this interview with the media that have always stood out to me. I want to focus particularly on the introduction the Ramseys gave and something that they both said towards the end of the interview. Not so much a focus on Patsy's infamous warning of God knows who you are and we will find you. Almost from the jump of the interview, both John and Patsy claimed their innocence with John saying, quote, I did not kill my daughter, Jean Benet. Jean Benet and I had a very close relationship I will miss her dearly for the rest of my life. Patsy followed up with, quote, I'm appalled that anyone would think that John or I would be involved in such a hideous, heinous crime. But let me assure you that I did not kill Jean Benet and did not have anything to do with this. I loved that child with my whole of my heart and soul. It should be noted, they weren't even asked the question of if they killed Jean Benet prior to making these statements. John went on a minute or two long explanation of why they hired lawyers so quickly, and only at the tail end of getting that out of the way did he mention the crux of the matter, which, obviously, was the murder of Jean Benet. The Ramseys utilized this specific quirk in several of their publicized interviews. Exaggeration. When they could just make specific, strong statements of, no, I didn't kill her, or just, I did not kill her, they add 
extraneous fluff. They add expressive adverbs and adjectives and insert effusive details to ramp up the emotion. Quote, a hideous, heinous crime, specifically identifying Jean-Benet as my daughter, my whole of my heart and soul. It's descriptive. It's not a simple declarative statement. Something else I found odd, particularly when Patsy's quote here, actually two things, quote, let me assure you, yes, sure, you have suspicions surrounding you in the death of your daughter, but by beseeching the audience and saying, let me assure you, when considered more carefully, it belays a tone of trying to convince someone of something, to be persuasive. If you're genuinely confident that you're innocent, why are you so hung up on convincing strangers of that fact? The other thing about Patsy's first statement is how specifically she chooses to exonerate herself. Because no, she doesn't just leave it at, I did not kill Jean Benet like her husband. No, no, Patsy was one step further. She makes sure to stress that not only did she not kill Jean Benet, but claims she, quote, did not have anything to do with this. And it makes you think, honestly, why does Patsy speak more insistently than John? Why get so specific? She's trying to persuade the public again. And when you break it down, it comes across like she's going above and beyond to convince people she's innocent. Now, I understand that if anyone was accused of a crime, you do whatever you could in your power to clear your name if you were truly innocent. And here at DAW, we're in the business of asking hashtag questions, which is precisely why I find it interesting to question, quite literally, the intention and behavioral quirks behind these statements. Statement analysis and body language analysis are incredibly subjective concepts, so while questioning the intention and meaning behind certain terms of phrase or physical tics might not mean anything, it could be also argued that the subconscious and truth do have a way of making themselves known through these same indicators. Towards the end of the interview, the couple is asked this, why do you think it happened? Let me repeat, why do you think it happened? Patsy answered, I don't know. John answers, I think probably the first issue that raised people's curiosity was involving the lawyers, and hopefully I explained that clearly. But I also think we, as a country, and perhaps some of you as a reporting entity, enemy, are cynics, and that's kind of sad. And we are not perfect people, but we are not bad people. Couple of things to note here. One, finally, we get a simple declarative statement from Patsy. She simply doesn't know. No over-the-top posturing, no exaggerating, no dramatic warnings. It feels like one of, if not the most, honest thing she says throughout the entire 30-minute interview. And then we get to John's answer, except it's not really an answer because he straight up does not answer the question. Let me read the exchange back to you. John is asked, why do you think it happened? John replies, I think probably the first issue that raised people's curiosity was involving the lawyers, and hopefully I explain that clearly. But I think we also as a country, and perhaps some of you as a reporting entity enemy, are cynics, and that's kind of sad. And we are not perfect people, but we're not bad people. Let me just say, what the hell? Once again, John leads into his statement by reminding listeners that they have lawyers. He then makes a broad sweeping statement about the sad, cynical state of the country and even calls reporters the enemy, which 
that's a hell of a picture to paint. Why vilify the media? Why disparage and speak down about your fellow American citizens? And maybe most importantly, why not answer the question? This whole roundabout rambling reads like a deflection. He lays blame on people being curious about the case, says the country is cynical, calls reporters the enemy. He doesn't give a straight answer about what he believes is the reason this all happened. Instead, he closes it out with another emotional appeal, taking a leaf out of Patsy's book. We are not perfect people, but we're not bad people. What does this even mean in relation to the question? You were asked why you think your daughter was murdered. Even repeating Patsy's, I don't know, would have been more understandable than laying blame at the feet of national cynicism. Why place such emphasis on making sure people know that you aren't bad people? What bad thing are you trying to wash your hands of, John? Now, even with the Ramseys finally deigning to allow the BPD to interview them in April 97, that didn't just up and clear them as suspects. No, no, we still have a hell of an investigation going on. And it's here where I want to talk about something that's both crucially present and crucially missing from this entire case. The evidence. There is a lot of evidence that we could discuss for literal days from this case, but I want to focus on a few key pieces that came under scrutiny. However, before we check out some key instances, it needs to be said once again, and it will not be the last time such a claim is stated when it comes to the murder of JonBenet Ramsey. The cavalcade of fuck that was allowed to take place on the morning of December 26th indisputably destroyed what could have been and could have proven to be absolutely critical pieces of evidence and instead turned them into contaminated items that will always be tainted with questions of its physical integrity as it relates to the investigation. This is a very poetic way to say so much potential DNA and evidence was invalidated on December 26th that it is actually physically painful for someone like me to think about what all we don't even know we lost to crime scene contamination that day. And I say that even though in 2000, Boulder PD reported that they had already logged 1,400 pieces of evidence. Despite the body itself being contaminated, what with John handling it when he discovered Jean Benet, detectives aren't moving it for a second time after she was brought up to the first floor, and of course, Patsy flinging herself on top of her daughter, there is still a decent amount of insight we glean from Jean Benet's body. Shall we discuss? As we all know, when JonBenet was found, she was in a strange and distressing state. There was tape across her mouth, her hands had been tied together, and there was a roughly applied garrote around her neck. That right there provides us with three key pieces of evidence. Let's talk about the tape. When John discovered his daughter's body, there was a piece of black tape secured against her mouth. Before he took her upstairs, he ripped the tape off, and Fleet White, who was in the wine cellar room with him, then picked it up to check it out himself. Bravo, gentlemen. Just you are absolute naturals when it comes to contamination. In the 2003 Carnes ruling, it was stated that the tape had, quote, a perfect set of child's lip prints, which did not indicate a tongue impression or resistance. Judge Carnes also ruled that, quote, both ends of the duct tape found on her were torn indicating that it had come from a roll of tape that had been used before, which went against John's claims that the tape appeared smoothly cut on both ends, like it had been cut by a knife. What this seems to suggest is that the tape came from, like Harnez said, 
a previously used roll of tape. And since there wasn't any sign that JonBenet tried to use her mouth to remove the tape, like picking at it with her tongue or manipulating her face to loosen it, it suggests that she was unconscious or dead by the time the tape was applied, which hypothetically suggests the tape was part of staging JonBenet, allegedly, possibly, certainly just potential consideration of what may have happened. Nobody sue me. However, and there's going to be a lot of howevers in this segment, just prepare yourselves now. No one has ever been able to figure out where the tape came from. According to police reports, quote, no similar duct tape was found in the house, and the Ramseys have long claimed that it simply wasn't theirs. Let's focus on the garage now. For the garage, though, that was sourced to the Ramseys, and particularly to Patsy's own art supplies. Also, calling this broken paintbrush contraption a garage is pretty generous. It was more or less the broken paintbrush with a length of rope tied intricately around the paintbrush and then tied around JonBenet's neck. Interestingly, fibers from the sweaty sweater Patsy wore that night were found in that very knot. Maybe stranger still, though, no interpretable DNA was found on the garage, despite John having both claimed and was seen to be handling JonBenet's body. Now, before we all send ourselves into a mental tailspin of contradicting questions, let me point out, the presence or the lack of presence of DNA isn't necessarily an indicator of whether or not something was or wasn't touched. That's a lot of double negatives, so let me simplify. You don't necessarily leave DNA on every single thing you touch. It's a fact that contributes to the constant theorizing in this case. You can argue one side of things, but then the presence or absence of DNA can make another theory seemingly go right out the window. It's especially difficult because, feasibly, any item in the household could have reasonably been expected to have Ramsey DNA on it. Patsy's, John's, Burke's, and even JonBenet's, which then infinitely complicates things because who then is to say an item was specifically touched in the parameters of what happened to JonBenet? And it should also be remembered, this was all taking place in 1996. The technology behind identifying and utilizing trace or touch DNA just wasn't as advanced or widely used back then as it is now. Debating the DNA evidence of this case is a headache and a half, and considering every angle is liable to drive you insane, which is exactly how I feel right about now. <laughs> but stepping away from the intricacies of DNA, let me ask you this. Why fashion the garrote at all? Sure, on the outside, the killer might not have known how devastating and fatal the blow to JonBenet's head would prove to be, and they might have thought that they needed an insurance of sorts that JonBenet would, without a shadow of a doubt, die. But the garage is a complication. It's a threat to the killer's identity. It leaves evidence. It wastes time. It's one more thing that can put the killer at risk of discovery in the moment or down the road. It feels unnecessary. It is, in a way, a prop designed to fit the scene rather than serve an actual purpose for a murderer trying to complete their crime. Let's take things upstairs now and discuss another crucial piece of evidence, the ransom note. As we know, the ransom note was discovered on the back spiral staircase of the Ramsey home by Patsy, and later it was determined the paper and pen used to write the note were not only from within the house, but the paper was from one of Patsy's own notepads and both items were later replaced in their usual spot after being used. The same was determined of the, what we can consider the false start ransom note, 
which started out with the title of Mr. and Mrs. I, the I possibly indicating the writer stopped before completely writing the letter R for Ramsey. All of the Ramseys and several other individuals submitted handwriting samples to be compared to the ransom note. Handwriting analysis is not a hard and fast science, but it is one that illuminates clearly a lot of educated guesses. Everyone in the immediate family was quickly cleared of writing the ransom note, except Patsy. Patsy actually had to submit five handwriting samples for experts to examine. She would be interrogated about the handwriting in a family photo album that appeared similarly to the ransom note, and she claimed she did not particularly recognize the writing, which, nice phrasing, so as not to perjure yourself. Kind of kidding, nobody sue me. Housekeepers would later report that the handwriting in the ransom note and the notes that they had received from Patsy in the past were alarmingly near identical, and still others have pointed to the tone, verbiage, and style of the ransom note being similar to Christmas letters Patsy sent out to friends and family over the years. I also want to note that there were no latent fingerprints able to be lifted from the paper despite knowing both John and Patsy handled it. It's a hot topic in the JonBenet community about whether or not Patsy wrote the note, but I will say this. All other members of the family who submitted samples were fully eliminated. Most experts seem to believe that it's likely that she has, especially since Patsy's writing in comparison to the note has only ever been ruled an inconclusive match. And that, my friends, is not what we call being ruled out. Perhaps the most infamous piece of evidence of all in this case is the pineapple. During his autopsy, medical examiner Meyer discovered the remnants in JonBenet's small intestine of what appeared to be pineapple. In determining when she might have eaten it, quote, experts estimated that JonBenet had eaten it an hour and a half or two hours before she died, most likely after the family returned home that night. Funny that, because long have the denials been from John and Patsy that neither of them fed JonBenet pineapple that night. And yet, funnier still, on the dining room table when CSI was documenting the scene, there was an almost full bowl of pineapple with a spoon in it and an almost empty glass of tea next to each other. It's, you know, one thing to leave an empty mug or glass somewhere in the kitchen, especially on a busy day like Christmas, but to leave an almost full bowl of pineapple sitting out to spoil and get gross? I don't buy it that suddenly everyone in this household has no idea what the deal with the bowl of pineapple is about. Patsy even tried to claim that she wouldn't have served the pineapple with the spoon that was in the bowl because she claimed it was too large and almost looked silly in comparison. However, the bowl of pineapple had both Patsy and Burke's latent fingerprints on them when it was later tested. And it was the same bowl of pineapple that Burke refused to identify when he saw pictures of it in his 1998 interview. Strange, too, how the finished glass of tea right next to the bowl had fingerprints on it as well. Except this time, they were just Burke's. There was another piece of evidence found in the kitchen area of the home, and this one, like the duct tape that belonged to no one, and the mysteriously appearing pineapple none of the Ramseys wanted to claim, also apparently had no owner. Of course, I am referring to the flashlight. Standing straight up on the kitchen counter was a black maglite flashlight, seemingly out of place amongst all the normal kitchen countertop clutter. Police officers on the scene towards the end of the day claimed that the flashlight wasn't any of theirs, and so too did the Ramseys follow suit saying it wasn't their flashlight either. Thinking it was proof someone had entered the house, police took it into evidence, 
and they were met with a strange discovery. There weren't any prints on the flashlight at all, including even on the internal batteries. To some, this suggests the flashlight was wiped down to erase any possible fingerprints. To balance out this theory, I have to also point out that no prints being found might just mean the prints that they did find weren't clear and detailed enough to count as full prints. But what's really odd is this. The flashlight did belong to the Ramses, and Patsy even admitted as such in her 1997 interview when she told investigators that her stepson, John Andrew, had actually given it to John and that it was usually kept in a drawer near their bar area, not in the kitchen. In 98, John too finally copped the truth and admitted in an interview that it was his flashlight and that it did, in fact, belong in a drawer along the family bar. So why make such weird claims about the flashlight in the first place at all? There are two other pieces of evidence I want to mull over, and both of them are physical. The first, the marks found on JonBenet's lower back and beneath her right ear. Both have been described as abrasions in the autopsy report. For the injuries on her lower back, Meyer wrote that they appeared to be, quote, two rust-colored to slightly purple abrasions and were, quote, one-eighth by one-sixteenth of an inch, and the more inferior measured three-sixteenths by one-eighth of an inch. The mark on her neck was a three-eighths of an inch by one-fourth inch area of rust-colored abrasion. No one has ever officially identified what caused the marks, but with it being the JonBenet case, of course, theories abound. One of the most popular schools of thought is that the marks were caused by a stun gun. Now, the Ramses did not own a stun gun, and no stun gun connected to the case has ever been found, which might suggest someone outside the family would have applied the stun gun to JonBenet in order to possibly subdue her. However, the stun gun marks are supposed to resemble burns, and many experts over the years have come forward to say that they don't believe the marks on JonBenet match up with the imprint a stun gun would leave behind. Also, it's interesting to note, if it was a stun gun, why are the marks differently sized to a noticeable degree? And why is only one mark noticed by her ear as opposed to the two distinct marks on her back? And more to the fact, experts agree that stun gun marks disappear quickly. These were stun gun marks. How did they manage to last through the whole morning of the 26th and well into the afternoon before JonBenet was found? The last piece of prominent physical evidence I want to discuss is the possibility that JonBenet had been sexually abused. JonBenet was six years old when she died, and it's been documented that in the three years before her death, she made, count them, 27 trips to her pediatrician, more often than not complaining of vaginal irritation. After the autopsy report was released, Francesco Buff, Jamini's doctor, made a statement that her visits weren't all that unusual and suggested that it was, quote, perhaps related to the use of bubble bath. I don't think I quite buy the bubble bath UTI theory from Buff, as much as I might suggest that, given her problems with bedwetting, Maybe that was the source of JonBenet's discomfort and her trips to the doctor. According to the JonBenet encyclopedia, quote, the autopsy report took no position on the issue of whether there was prior sexual abuse. However, all such claims are based on autopsy findings in part because Meyer described the possibility of prior vaginal trauma. There was an abrasion on her vaginal wall, dried blood in her underwear and on her labia majora, and her hymen had suffered some trauma as well. Meyer noticed that chronic vaginal inflammation was present and, quote, wooden shards from the paintbrush used to make the garrote were found in her vagina. Experts themselves are undecided on the issue of if Jean Benet had been sexually abused before her murder. And admittedly, 
I'm just as confused as they are about what the different suggestions the evidence makes. Though it's clear that even if she didn't suffer abuse prior to her death, she unfortunately did the night she died. Though they deserve their own discussion, I do want to point out some other general oddities in terms of evidence that was discovered. It has since come out that on the morning of the 26th, Patsy was found to be wearing the same clothes that she had been wearing to the White's Christmas party the night before, which in the stylings of Keenan Thompson, what's up with that? Stranger still in Kohler's book, Foreign Faction, he reported that Officer French even noticed that Patsy's hair and makeup looked freshly done. So what are we supposed to make of this? Did Patsy not actually ever go to bed that night? Did she wear her party clothes to bed? Or maybe the better question is this. Why would the former pageant queen, who allegedly would never be caught dead wearing the same outfit twice, be wearing the clothes she had worn the day before? And when JonBenet was found, it was discovered that she was wearing underwear far too large for her. She typically wore a child size four to six, and these were a size 12. They were from a package of previously unopened girls' underwear that was found as well. So what the hell is this about? How did JonBenet come to get this pair of oversized underwear on her body? And another piece of evidence that's always caught my eye, though it's quite different from the ones that we just discussed. Instead of physical evidence, this is something that was shared during an interview the day after Jean Benet was found dead. And it's from her older half-brother, John Andrew. John Andrew was interviewed by police on December 27th, and as they were wrapping up the videotape session, the officer asked him what he thought the appropriate punishment might be for whoever had killed his half-sister. According to a 1997 Vanity Fair piece, quote, after a long pause, John Andrews said, quote, forgiveness. Incredulous, the detectives went into the brutality of his half-sister's murder and asked him to reconsider his answer. Another silence ensued, and then he said again, quote, forgiveness. In a case like this, sometimes it's not the things that are said that prove to be the most damning. It's the things that go unsaid. Much like John said in their CNN interview five days after JonBenet was murdered, life had to go on. And go on it did, and so too did the investigation. Throughout the first few years of the investigation, press releases kept coming out of the Boulder PD and DA's offices. Search warrants would be executed. More media appearances, articles, and even books would be produced. The Ramseys eventually put 755 15th Street on the market and absconded back to Georgia as it was always assumed that they would. They picked up the habit of cutting off friends who didn't stick to their party line, including the Whites and Fernies, who had been there with them on the very day Jean Benet had been found murdered. In the late winter of 1998, DA Alex Hunter would claim that the investigation was being, quote, hindered by the Ramsey's lack of cooperation. On March 12, 1998, though, the Daily Camera reported that the Boulder police officially requested Hunter convene a grand jury for the case. The beauty of a grand jury is that the panel could force John and Patsy and even Burke to testify in spite of the fact that the Ramseys were refusing to speak with police anymore. And those subpoenas were surely what the BPD were after. Interestingly enough, after the news that Hunter was considering convening a grand jury broke, soon after, John and Patsy were in his office and submitted to interviews in late June of that year. If this was an attempt to dissuade Hunter from calling the panel together and avoiding the threat of subpoenas, it didn't work. On September 9, 1998, the grand jury proceedings began as jurors finally started hearing evidence about Jean Benet's murder. Grand juries, though, are much like Vegas. What happens in there is supposed to stay in there. 
To this day, we don't have much of an idea of what exactly the jurors were presented with in terms of evidence. It took over a year for the grand jury to hear all of the evidence they needed to in order to make a decision. On October 13th, 1999, the grand jury disbanded. That same day, District Alex's attorney made an announcement. Quote, we do not have sufficient evidence to warrant a filing of charges against anyone who has been investigated at this time. Just like that, to the public at large, it felt like the case had been forced closed, or at least relegated to the cold case files. A lot happened in the span of the next 14 years, and you have to wonder, how do you go about living your life once it's been defined by such an event? The Ramseys made every attempt to do just that once the grand jury adjourned. Sure, more books and movies about the case came out, fringe weirdos with outrageous claims came forward, and John and Patsy still made the rounds on the news circuit, appearing with Barbara Walters, Katie Couric, and they even allowed journalism students to interview them at one point. In February 2002, it was announced that Patsy's cancer had returned. At the end of the year, in December 2002, Alex Hunter was replaced as the DA by a woman named Mary Lacey, who almost immediately shifted away from the police's focus on John and Patsy as the main suspects, and instead began primarily focusing on the idea an intruder had murdered John Bonet. Lacey's focus on an intruder theory would lead her to claiming in 2008 that, with a small piece of DNA that allegedly came from the long john underwear Jean Benet had been wearing at the time of her death, it proved to her that the Ramseys were innocent, and she labeled them all as exonerated. It would be two years too late, though, because Patsy had succumbed to her ovarian cancer back in 2006. Almost immediately at the news of this, though, the Boulder police contested this exoneration as being far too hasty. And they contested even louder when they learned that the DNA testing hadn't been nearly as stringent as it was supposed to be. It came out that the forensic investigators in the DA's office at the time had, quote, deviated and dropped down to four markers as opposed to the standard 13 usually used in forensic analysis. With Mary Lacey losing re-election to Stan Garnett that next year in 2009, the Boulder police resumed control of the case that was now starting to seem truly cold. And then... In 2013, the grand jury proceedings truly came to light. Lest we forget, on October 13, 1999, Alex Hunter claimed that we do not have sufficient evidence to warrant a filing of charges against anyone who has been investigated at this time. In 2013, once again, though, it became apparent that what wasn't being said was more important than what was being said. When a judge ruled to unseal portions of the grand jury documents, these documents revealed that the jury actually did vote to indict Patsy and John on charges of child endangerment, quote, resulting in death in connection with the events of Christmas night, 1996. Count four of the indictments of the Ramseys did, quote, unlawfully, knowingly, recklessly, and feloniously permit a child to be unreasonably placed in a situation which posed a threat of injury to the child's life or health, which resulted in the death of JonBenet Ramsey, a child under the age of 16. Count seven of the indictments said that the Ramseys did, quote, unlawfully, knowingly, and feloniously render assistance to a person with intent to hinder, delay, and prevent the discovery, detention, apprehension, prosecution, conviction, and punishment of such person for the commission of a crime, knowing the person being assisted has committed and was suspected of the crime of murder in the first degree in child abuse resulting in death. That is a mouthful. Quote, <laughs> no more quotes. <laughs> no, no. I said count four and count seven. 
Those were the two charges the jury agreed upon as a recommendation for indictment. What this reveals, though, is that Hunter must have presented more charges, more possible reasons to indict the Ramseys, and that more than likely included murder. However, it should also be said that when it comes to grand jury proceedings, the burden of proof is much lower than the classic beyond a reasonable doubt that we all know from watching too much Law and Order. A grand jury only has to meet the standard of probable cause, and only nine out of the 12 jurors have to agree. In a trial, though, all 12 members of the jury have to be unanimous in the decision. So, the grand jury presented Hunter with a recommendation to indict both Patsy and John on child abuse charges that led to the death of Jean Benet. But Hunter refused to sign the indictment. And as always, it must be asked, why? Legal experts believe that this refusal to sign off on the charges give an insight into Hunter's thoughts, and he most likely thought that he wouldn't be able to prove the charges of child abuse, endangerment, and hindering an individual with the death of Jean Benet, he wouldn't be able to prove them to a level of beyond reasonable doubt to a trial jury. And if Hunter failed to do so, then, as the Boulder PD stated in a press release after the charges were unsealed, quote, the opportunity to present the entire case to a jury would have been lost forever. The beauty of double jeopardy. I think it's strange, though, that Hunter would go through all of this trouble of assembling the grand jury together and wading through 13 months of proceedings only to not pursue the charges that they recommended. Craig Silverman, a Denver deputy district attorney, also pointed out, quote, and did the grand jury come up with those charges on their own? No way. One of the DAs had to provide that verbiage. So why would Hunter go through all of this trouble and then just not pursue the recommended indictments? On the other hand, I can, to a degree, understand why Hunter finally came to the decision to not go forward with the indictments. If he truly didn't believe that he could prove his case to the higher standards of a trial jury, the entire case would have been put in jeopardy for the future. So... What was it? An instance where the DA was altruistic enough to want to preserve the case for the future and the possibility that stronger evidence would one day could be brought about and then proved? Or was Hunter more concerned about his track record and simply didn't want to lose to a trial? Honestly, who's to say? It's another contradiction and just one more hashtag fucking question in a case that's filled with contradictions and things left unsaid. So here we are now. It's 2020. This December will mark 24 years since JonBenet's lifeless body was discovered in the basement of her home. This past Thursday actually marked what would have been and should have been her 30th birthday. And yet, even with 400 suspects, thousands of pages of reports, hundreds of pieces of evidence, and so many advancements in technology that just weren't available back in 1996, we still don't have any more concrete answers than we did that December day so many years ago almost a quarter of a century without any hard and fast answers. Which means, obviously, there's a lot of hashtag fucking questions to ask. One, what came first? The blow to the head or the strangulation? Who drew the heart found on JonBenet's palm? Is there a meaning behind it or is it actually just a meaningless doodle? Who wiped down JonBenet's vaginal area? What caused the abrasions on JonBenet's neck and lower back? When did she eat the pineapple that was found in her lower intestine? What caused that eight inch long skull fracture? Why did the Ramseys refuse to be formally interviewed by police for months, but grant an interview to CNN just five days after JonBenet's death? 
Why did Burke claim he was, quote, just getting on with my life roughly a week after his sister was found murdered in their home? If she really had been almost kidnapped, why wasn't he afraid he could be next? Did he know the kidnapping might have been a ruse? What was the deal with the reports of feces being smeared throughout the house? Was Burke asleep on the morning of the 26th? Or was he awake, like he said he was in his 1998 interview with Detective Schuler? Why did Burke basically refuse to identify the pineapple in the bowl? Why did it make him appear so nervous when he was shown photos of it in that same 98 interview? Why did the Ramseys seemingly do everything in their power to make it difficult for the police to work with them? Why did they refuse to fully cooperate? Why did they demand to be given the police records from December before they agreed to their April interviews? Why did their stories about what happened in December change so noticeably when they were interviewed in April? Why did John refuse, either purposely or subconsciously, to answer the question of why do you think it happened during their local media interview the day after their formal interviews? Where did the tape found on Jamine's mouth come from? Why was the garrote used at all? Why were her wrists tied so loosely and the garrote fashioned much more tightly around her neck? Does this suggest that one person tied her wrists and another tied the garrote? Why was there such a lack of DNA evidence throughout the whole case? Why did Patsy deny knowing anything about the pineapple, although her fingerprints were on the bowl? Why did Patsy deny recognizing her own handwriting when police interviewed her about it? How did JonBenet come to even have the pineapple in her system if her parents denied feeding it or getting it for her? Why was the mad light flashlight not in the drawer where it had always been kept? And why did the Ramseys initially deny the fact that it was their own flashlight? Was JonBenet being, or had she been, sexually abused before her death? Why weren't the Ramseys subpoenaed? for the grand jury. And on the flip of that coin, why was Burke subpoenaed to testify for the grand jury, but not his parents? What is the true reason Alex Hunter refused to sign the indictment on the child endangerment and abuse charges and the charge about helping the person who killed Jean Benet from the grand jury brought against the Ramses? Why was Mary Lacey so hell-bent on proving that an intruder killed Jean Benet? And why did she use incomplete DNA testing to claim the Ramses were innocent? In 2000, the Ramsey family lawyer drafted a statement, an affidavit actually, that stated, quote, all questions related to Burke's possible involvement in the death of his sister were resolved to the satisfaction of investigators. It was presented to Alex Hunter. He refused to sign it. Why? What evidence did the grand jury hear that convinced them to recommend the Ramseys be brought up on charges that they had endangered JonBenet to the point of her death and that they assisted whoever killed her? Let's discuss now the two biggest schools of thought when it comes to theorizing about just who did kill Jean Benet. Now, these two schools of thought aren't just two ideas because that would be too easy. No, no, they get broken down and analyzed just as much as any other piece of evidence in this case. One theory believes an intruder killed Jean Benet, and whether it was a friendly intruder like someone she knew or had met before or a full-on stranger, those are all possibilities explored under the umbrella of an intruder being the killer. The other theory is colloquially, that's hard to say, known as RDI, Ramsey did it. But this gets further broken down as well into three main possibilities that question which Ramsey did it. We have PDI, Patsy did it, JDI, standing for John did it, and we have BDI, Burke did it. 
The theory an intruder killed Jean Bonnet has a variety of motives for each possibility of what type of intruder it was. Perhaps it was a disgruntled Axis Graphics employee or ex-employee who wanted revenge on John for some reason. Maybe it was a business competitor also trying to exact retribution for some unknown business world agenda. There had been several break-ins and burglaries in the neighborhood leading up to December 26th. Had the Ramseys been an unwitting target by some local thieves and Jean Bonnet's death simply an accident during a break-in? At the time of Jean Bonnet's death as well, there were just under 40 sex offenders registered in the surrounding area of the Ramsey home. Had her exposure in the community, thanks to her pageant activities, drawn the attention of a pedophile? An unknown pedophile who stalked and lurked and later manipulated their way into the Ramsey home? Or perhaps one of the predators who have been arrested and later dismissed on suspicion of her death did it. There have been a number of fucking weirdos over the years who have claimed to have killed John Bonnet, and almost all of them have been found to be lying. John Mark Carr, for instance, who in 2006 confessed to killing her, though he was later outed as the liar he was. There was convicted pedophile Gary Oliva, who was arrested in 2000 with a picture of Jean Bonnet in his wallet, and similarly confessed despite having absolutely zero evidence to his claims. I don't know what it says about these people that they falsely claim they murdered Jean Bonnet, but making these claims must come from a depth of madness that I don't ever want to understand. Or maybe, in a more terrifying turn of theorizing, maybe Jean Bonnet knew her killer. Some believe Bill McReynolds, he who played Santa at the Ramsey Christmas party for the third year in a row, it should be noted, and then told Jean Bonnet that she could expect another secret visit from Santa in the days after Christmas. Some believe that he had designs to assault her, especially since, curiously enough, his wife had written a play years earlier that had eerie similarities to the events of Jean Bonnet's death. However, given the fact that he was in his late 60s and again, recovering from triple bypass surgery, I truly find this extension of the known intruder theory really hard to believe. Boulder PD never seriously considered either of the McReynolds of having played a role in the murder, but his wife later said that Bill, quote, just never got over the Ramseys claiming he was a suspect. According to his wife, quote, he was just so devastated by the mere idea anyone would suspect them of a crime. Much like the Ramseys, the McReynolds eventually felt that they couldn't live in Boulder anymore. They made a new home on Cape Cod in 98, but Bill McReynolds was dead from a heart attack by 2002, at 72 years old and six years after Jean Bonnet's death. Of all the variations of the intruder theory, this is one I'm confident in saying I believe is out and out false. And it highlights in a particularly tragic way how this case managed to harm the lives of not just the Ramseys, but so many other people as well. There have been suggestions that perhaps the killer was someone very well known to Jean Bonnet, someone like Fleet White or John Fernie, though it should be noted both men as well as their wives have all been exonerated a handful of separate times over the years. The ransom note with its direct digs at John, knowledge of personal matters like the $118,000, that being the exact figure John received as a bonus, and even simply referring to John by name, all show signs that whoever wrote the ransom note had intimate knowledge of the Ramsey family's affairs and was, by all indication, someone who was at the very least close enough to have this insider information. To think someone in your closest circle of confidence could ruthlessly murder your daughter has to be a type of chilling paranoia that never quite releases its grip on you. All of this said, though, I have to admit, personally, I don't think an intruder murdered Jean Bonnet. There is evidence to support the various facts of the intruder theory, and there is evidence to dismiss it as well. 
The evidence in this case, as we've already discussed, can drive you out of your fucking mind with all the different interpretations and various ways of framing and tricks of the light that can twist the facts to truly fit a variety of different theories all at the same time. When it comes right down to it, though, I personally find the evidence of an intruder committing this crime to be more far-fetched and arguably quite a stretch at times, which debunks the overarching theory in my personal opinion, which then leads us to the remaining school of thought. The Jambonet was murdered by someone in her family. Now, John, Andrew, and Melinda, her older half-siblings, they were cleared as suspects quickly by police, given that they were both confirmed to be in Georgia at the time of Jambonet's death. So that leaves only three main people to consider. John, Patsy, Burke. One of the biggest questions about the whole issue of this surrounds the motive of killing Jambonet. Why? What would killing Jambonet do for anyone? The question of motive is inherently an emotional one here. We have a ransom note with insider knowledge revealed in its contents showing that the author must have had, had some personal tie to the family. The very physical aspects of the letter showed the writer was comfortable with using items in the household, so much so that they knew where to return the pad of paper and the pen back to their original and proper spots. Hell, the garage itself was fashioned out of one of Patsy's own paintbrushes from her craft supplies. And these are only just a few pieces of evidence that lead directly back to the family. There are also curious examples of the family lying about pieces of evidence and events that came under suspicion. They denied owning the flashlight found in the kitchen and a bowl of pineapple that Patsy claimed that she never put together couldn't possibly have been her. And Burke's fingerprints were also on that, as were her own. John and Patsy claiming Burke was asleep the entire morning, though we know from interviews he himself said he was awake. And more lies about him being awake were further proven to be false because of the enhanced technology suggests his voice is heard at the end of Patsy's 911 call. There was the broken basement window, the one John claimed he broke in August, yet he didn't alert police to after his own searches in the basement. Fibers from the red sweater Patsy was wearing, the same sweater that she'd worn on the 25th and was wearing again on the 26th, were found intertwined in the knot of the rope that was wrapped around Jean Benet's neck. There is the two large pair of underwear Jean Benet was found wearing that was never explained, and there were fibers in the underwear and on her vaginal area that have since been said to have come from the sweater John is wearing on the 26th. Certain events on that morning also stand out as being strange, inconsistent, and borderline inappropriate. Patsy's insistent on having groups of friends in the house despite this contradicting precisely what the alleged kid kidnapper said not to do. The lack of care that no ransom call ever came and that no one ever actually retrieved the ransom money. John's trips to the basement alone. The fact that they sent Burke to a neighbor's house seemingly unfazed that he could be at risk of being kidnapped himself next. The hour and a half or so the detective aren't lost track of John. The fact that more than one person had gone to the basement and Flea White had even entered the wine cellar room himself and yet no one discovered John Bonet there until John did that afternoon. And of course there was also John's phone call to the family pilot asking that he prepare their plane so that the family could leave Boulder that very day. We also have to consider that there is the evidence from the autopsy that suggests that, at the very least, JonBenet was a victim of sexual assault, and at the worst, that she'd been subjected to sexual abuse for a period of time before her death. So too is there evidence that her vaginal area was wiped clean before the discovery of her body, a simultaneously curious and confusing thing to have, have happened. There is a JonBenet's history of bedwetting and Burke's own instances of misconduct by smearing feces in the house and on JonBenet's things. 
And even so, there is a sibling history between them of Burke having already hit and injured JonBenet at least once before. I think the idea of why JonBenet was killed comes back around to one of the concepts that's at the very heart of the case, secrets and protecting secrets. What we see from the Ramsey family on the morning of the 26th and every day after that is a family in protection mode. They're utilizing their lawyers, their money, their status to shield themselves from prying eyes while also inviting speculation on someone, anyone, who could be the alleged killer. They are by turns over the top in their interviews, claiming mere days after the murder that they just want to go on with their lives. But then turning around, they bring down the wrath of God as a threat. They tell half-truths. They tell carefully twisted tales. They tell outright lies. But why? Had Patsy, in a fit of momentary rage and exhaustion from the social demands of the holidays, had she snapped and hit her daughter after yet another frustrating bedwetting incident? Or maybe, was John abusing Jean Monnet? Did Patsy unwittingly discover this abuse in the act and, trying to get her husband off of her daughter, did she hit Jean Monnet when she meant to hit John? Or possibly, did John, while sexually abusing his daughter, did he accidentally kill her and force his wife into helping him cover it up and thus protect their seemingly idyllic life together? Or maybe, did Burke, in a childish fit of his own rage stemming from long-term jealousy, did he become annoyed with his sister one final time? Had he previously been taking out his frustration on her with occasional instances of sexual abuse? Did Jean Bonnet waking up after being put to bed, did she come downstairs and maybe tease Burke just a little too much? And did she grab a piece of his pineapple, the snack that he had put together himself, and did that incite that jealous rage inside him just one more time? Maybe reacting much like he had when he hit her with a golf club, did Burke grab the nearest item and smack her over the head with what ended up being the flashlight that was found on the counter? Did JonBenet crumple against the spiral stairs where Burke cornered her, losing control of her bladder as she lost consciousness, and did she fall against the garland-covered railing? Maybe did he leave her unmoving body alone for a span of time? And then, finally becoming worried when he saw that she hadn't awoken, did he approach his mother, and did he tell her that he'd accidentally hit his sister over the head? Did a panicked Patsy, not knowing what to do other than protect Burke, did she wake up John? And together, did they create a convoluted plan to save their son, believing Burke had accidentally killed her with the blow to the head? With her innate desire to keep up appearances, did Patsy possibly clean JonBenet's body as best she could, including wiping down her vaginal area? Did John, trying to figure out where to lay her body, did he possibly bring her to the basement and further tried to clean and dress his daughter's body? And did he do so by opening the package of underwear that was found later on her body so that she wouldn't have to wear soiled underwear? Did John try to make things seem more indicative of an assault by tying her wrists together, albeit loosely because he couldn't bring himself to actually harm her? Did Patsy write the rambling ransom note? pulling inspiration from movies that she'd seen over the years, using details from their own lives in an attempt to write a convincing ransom letter? Did Patsy do her best in an amateur way? Did she try to wipe away any fingerprints on potentially damning evidence? In an almost distracted way, maybe she touched the bowl of pineapple, maybe moving it aside as she continued looking for things to clean off to make sure that there were no signs of what they possibly had done. Did Patsy maybe go down to the basement after John and drawing on her flair for the dramatics? Did she try to make the scene seem more vicious and cruel? 
accidentally catching some strands from her sweater as she tied rope around the broken paintbrush to fashion the noose around her daughter's neck. And was Burke, nine-year-old Burke, who was legally too young to even be prosecuted of a crime, even one of an accidental nature, was Burke possibly watching it all happen? Watching as his parents scrambled to save the life that they knew and protect that life from this secret that had suddenly poisoned their entire household. To those who argue that no parent could ever do this or no parent would stage something this horrific, I present to you Diane Downs, Chris Watts, Andrea Yates, Casey Anthony. It's possible. It's all possible. While we can theorize and speculate, debate, and discuss like I've just shown you with this possible tale I've just woven, what remains is the most prominent fact of the case is this. There is a secret at the heart of this case, a secret that is still being protected all of these years later. I just wonder if that secret will ever come out and answer all of these questions that we still have. The murder of Jamini Ramsey is one of the great American mysteries of our time. Trying to fully wrap your mind around the intricacies, the details, the contradictions, and the seemingly endless nuances of this case is damn near impossible. It's a fascinating and disturbing look into human psychology and human behavior in a number of different ways, not least of all because it asks one truly pointed question. What would you have done? There have been hundreds, if not thousands, of minds that have puzzled and pored over this case for almost 25 years, and at the end of it all, Sometimes it feels like we're no closer to having a conclusion to this heartbreaking story than we were those almost 25 years ago. I knew for quite a while that I wanted to cover JonBenet's death as the 10th episode for Dark as Hell because it's an important case to me personally. I wanted to mark the 10th episode with this case that has long held my attention, my frustration, my curiosity. So color me shocked when I was looking through her autopsy report last Tuesday to hammer out a few details and I realized that JonBenet's birthday was only two days away. August 6th should have been the day JonBenet turned 30. Instead, we had to mark what should have been her 30th year as yet another year without answers and another year without justice. Steve Thomas, one of the original investigators on the case, once remarked that, quote, Miss America was the least JonBenet could have been. Everything and all that I've just said, I fully agree. Thanks for listening to today's episode and coming on this dark and twisty journey throughout the story of the murder of Jean Benet. If you like what you're hearing, hang out and stay a while by subscribing on your preferred podcast platform and leave a rating and review too if you're really leaning into the dog of it all. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasshellpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkasshellpodcast to see what level might tickle your spooky fancy. This week, I'll be sharing this month's exclusive extra episode for the Spooky Seance crew, and it's an exclusive episode of a seriously spook-filled nature, a story about a haunting that I myself actually once was in the presence of. And no, it's not about the ghost poodles. You truly don't want to miss this, so come be a part of the DAW Patreon crew patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you back here next week. Ready to get dark as hell all over again. <laughs>